Welcome to the Beacon Church Podcast. Each week we post a sermon from our last Sunday service so you can catch up, review, or share with your friends. We pray as you listen to this week's episode, you're encouraged and equipped to love God, love people, grow in Christ, and serve the world. Well, good morning, everybody. Technically afternoon. There it is. So uh, good afternoon, everybody. So glad that uh, you have joined us here for our first Holy Communion. This is now the second service. We had a group of kids in the first service as well. And uh, we're very, very excited to be able to participate with you, the family, and the friends who have come out to join and support them. Thank you for joining us, uh, and we hope uh, that you have a great morning. So the, the table of communion, it goes by a whole lot of different names, right? And so it's a, it's, for us, it's a little bit of cracker and a little bit of grape juice, and uh, we call it uh, the Lord's Table. That's what I grew up uh, sort of uh, referencing it. It's also called communion or holy communion. Some know it as the Eucharist. But I think for many of us, uh, if you grew up in any sort of Christian tradition, you have some form of this table as a center of your worship experience. And maybe it's every month on the first of the month. Maybe it's every week that you celebrated uh, the Lord's Table. Uh, but it, it's helpful for us every once in a while to stop and to say, well, what, is it, what does it actually mean? Well, why do we do this? And uh, if you get into the Bible and you start reading through the whole of the Bible, you realize it represents a lot of different things. And you could talk about this table in just tons of different ways, different metaphors, different images. Uh, and so this morning, I, wanted to, I had to pick one. Uh, and so this morning, I wanted to talk to you about this table as a contract, a contract between you and God. I know that sounds super exciting, a contract talk at church. So anyway, stick with me here, uh, and, and I hope uh, that uh, the idea of a contract between you and God will encourage your heart and soul in some way this morning. You know, I think all of us want a God who will help us out. I mean, why would you not, right? You wouldn't pick a God. You wouldn't try to follow a God who won't help you out. And so you want a God who is going to help you out. And uh, when he does, you feel really great about it. I heard a story about a guy. It was, uh, you know, around that time where he was like, it's, I got to, you know, get rid of the, the COVID pounds, you know, that he kind of put on. And so anyway, he had one uh, real problem. Every time he would drive home from work, the route he would take would, would take him past his favorite bakery. And so after a very stressful day at work, he always found himself stopping uh, for something delicious that this bakery was making. And he was like, I'm never going to lose weight with this bakery in my life. And so he came up with a very uh, simple and strategic solution. He said, you know what? I'm going to change the way I drive home, the route I take. I'm just going to go a different way home. And when that becomes my new pattern, I won't drive by the bakery anymore. And so there, I'll solve the problem. Sure enough, it works he goes weeks, he goes months, and he hasn't stopped by the baker. He's feeling pretty good about it until one day he made a mistake, and he accidentally took the old way home. It was a Friday, it was late, it was a long, hard week, and he's driving down, he's, he knows the bakery's coming up, and he's like, oh no, I forgot. Now I'm going to have to face this temptation. And then he thought, wait, maybe it wasn't a mistake. Maybe God 
made me come home this way because he wants to reward me for how good I've been. And so this is probably God's doing that I'm driving past the bakery at this time. And he was like, that's probably it. And he's like, but I'm not really sure. So I got to kind of put a test out there. So he said, I know what I'll do. I am going to pray, God, if this is your will, if you want me to stop and to indulge in some beautiful confections, something really delicious right now, then just open up a parking spot right in front of the bakery for me. Just open up a parking spot right there, and wouldn't you know it, God is good. God delivered. And on his eighth time around the block, he got a parking spot right there in front of the bakery. And so, you know, God delivered the goods. You know, we like a God and we like spirituality. We even like some of the rituals. Not so sure about the rules. We're not so sure about the responsibility. Faith, that's good. Responsibility, not so sure. We want faith with the good feelings, the warm fuzzies. That, that's awesome. Especially if there's a promise of heaven mixed in there. We definitely want the promise of heaven because if there is a heaven, definitely, definitely where I want to go. So, awesome promises. We like it. And yet when you study the scriptures, you realize it's so much more than that. When you start looking at the Bible, you start to realize, no, 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 they're talking about something entirely different. You got to consider how often, how we as Christians will often refer to our faith. You'll hear people say, you've got to have a personal relationship with Jesus. And there's a whole lot of great truth in that. Some of you might have been turned off by that phrase because you had like the crazy aunt who just talked about it all the time. And they're like, you got to have a personal, do you have a personal relationship? You personal, you're like, I don't even know what you're talking about anymore. But like, you know, but, but there's something in that. Christians use that language. They refer to their personal relationship with God, which is really a kind of an, an interesting sort of a way of referring to our relationship with the creator of the universe. Now, one of the most important relationships that we have as humans is the marriage relationship. And the marriage relationship is based on a, on a contract. You made a deal. And some of you are like, no, 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 no. My only deal we had was a prenup. That's not the kind of a deal I'm talking about. I'm talking about the kind that makes a person responsible if they violate the rules of the marriage. Society will hold you accountable. You'll, you'll pay You'll, you'll pay alimony and child support if you have not held up your end. It is a legal and binding contract that comes with rights and responsibilities. And so somehow in the human realm, when we have a relationship that we really cherish and value, we add a contract to it, which makes it more special. It makes it more sacred. And we do that in a ton of different ways. There's all sorts of kind of contracts that we, that we don't even really recognize. Like you have a contract as a family. So like it doesn't matter if you threaten your teenager that they have to like, you're going to kick them to the curb and make them sleep in the shed. You can't do it. I know I shouldn't be telling them that, but you can't actually do that because society has a contract. You, when you became a parent, you decided that there were responsibilities that you were willing to take on. You can turn off the internet. That is not a societal contract. It brings down the wrath of hell, but it, it is, it's, definitely, it's definitely allowed. 
And so we look at this kind of a thing and we realize that contracts, if you will, govern the most important relationships that we have. Contracts do. Or you could call them covenants. That's the biblical language. And it is one of the most important and overarching themes in the whole of the Bible. It starts in Genesis and they talk about it at the end of the Bible in Revelation. It shows up in dozens of different ways. This idea of covenant. Now I think a lot of us we sort of recoil from this idea because we really don't want a God of rules and responsibilities. We don't want a contractual sort of a God. We don't want a covenant kind of a God because we really don't want a God who is going to tell us what to do or how to live or who will hold us responsible for our actions. What we really want is kind of like a sweet grandfatherly sort of a God mixed in with like a little bit of Santa with the resources of Warren Buffett and like the creative fix-it of MacGyver. And if you gave me that God, like that's the one I'm going to cash in on because that, that's one that really, it can really help me with my stuff. But other than that, we really want him to mind his own business. God is saying, I will do no such thing. I love you too much. I care too much about my world, about my creation. My feelings for you are entirely too deep to sit on the sidelines. So we turn around, we're like, God, you know, I think we're going to keep him at arm's length. Like, I think we would be better off as friends. Just, it's not you, it's me. But, you know, just a little bit of distance, please. And God's saying, no, I want so much more than that. I want a personal, covenantal relationship with you. Something more significant, more meaningful. Not temporal, but eternal. That's where covenant comes in. And we see in the scriptures that covenants are super important, but we also learn that they're conditional. So in the ancient Near East, when a conquering king would blast through a region and take over the land he would make a deal with the people. He would say, hey, so uh, now I'm your king. I'm the new monarch in town. And um, you are going to be protected by me now. From, which is sort of ironic because they were fine until he, anyway. But now you're going to be protected by me from all of the other people that want to come in and conquer you. But I am here now, so I'm going to be your protector. And in exchange, you are going to pay tribute to me. You're going to pay taxes. You're going to send me the best of your people. And now I'm in charge, but as long as you hold up your end of the bargain, all will go well for you. They're conditional. You do this, and I will provide this. If you refuse to do this, look out. It's similar to what happened with Moses. Moses had a list of things that the Israelites were supposed to do, and if they did these things, God will bless you. And if you don't do those things, God will curse you and you'll end up being destroyed. That also means that punishments are an essential part of covenants. So a broken covenant carries punishment. We already talked about how that happens in a marriage. Forget just the, the legal stuff. There's all sorts of heartache and suffering that come when a marriage is dissolved. Of course, because this was a covenant relationship. You don't just pull these things apart without significant 
consequences, but we see it in business as well. You make a deal with someone, you, you have a business and you bring these two companies together to work on these product lines and this company fails to honor their contract and there's a whole battery of lawyers just waiting to pounce to make sure that the deal is held to or the consequences and the punishment that the breaking of the deal uh, had promised would come we also do this in all of society, right? So we all, we have these social contracts. And so when we do these things and we have those relationships, we, we barely even think about them. But anytime you have an expectation on a person on how they should behave or what they ought to do, it's really often an unstated social contract. And right, we all understand the difference in, in, in car horns, right? And so you're driving, you're at a, at a green light, I mean a red light and it goes green. And we all know that the guy who lays on the horn, that's the, you're a jerk, you're an idiot, you don't know how to drive, you fool. That's that horn. Or there's the beep, beep. Right? We all understand this. It's, it gets, the guy hit his horn. No, no, the beep, beep is the, hey, so um, you might have forgot you're driving. <laughs> and the light turned. And so maybe you should pay attention. And it's like the sweet thing, beep, beep. And we have these all over the place. I was studying it. I like to study at Starbucks sometimes, so I'm, I'm at Starbucks. And there's a guy yammering on his phone. Like he doesn't realize he's violating the social contract that we've all agreed to. You can't be yammering on your phone at Starbucks. You can have a conversation that I can eavesdrop on. You can't be on the phone and do it because I can only hear half the conversation. It's really, it, it creates like a disequilibrium in my brain. I have to fill in all the different parts. I don't understand what's going on. You can't talk. Am I, am I the only one that thinks this? You can't be talking at Starbucks on the phone. It's like against the social contract that we all agreed to when we were born in this country. This is how society functions, and it's also how most of us relate to God. In fact, all of the world religions relate to God. Even if it isn't religious, every secular way of understanding humanity does this. We think that if I do these things, then we will receive the blessing. And if we don't do these things, then we will get the curse. If I follow these rules, then all things work out great. And if I don't follow these rules, then look out. This is my only way to get heaven or nirvana or eternity or whatever you want to call it. So when people say that the world religions are all kind of pointing in the same direction, they're not wrong. It's just, it's just not the full story. It just leaves out the part that the Bible brings to this conversation. Now, in the, in the ancient world, a lot of these ceremonies were made even more sacred, even more special, uh, these contracts with big ceremonies. And so they would, they would create a ceremony for most of their, their, their important dealings. And in this case, the word covenant itself is the word for cut. And so, like, and we use it today in this way, right? So you can cut a deal with someone. So if you cut a deal with someone, that's the idea here. It comes from this word for covenant. You've, you've cut a deal. But in the ancient world, it was referencing a very, very real sort of cutting. So I'll give you an example of this. Abram, we, we know him as Abraham. He was, uh, God came to him and he said, hey, Abram, I'm going to make you a deal. I'm going to cut a deal with you. To see the land that you're in, I'm going to give you all this land, the land of Israel. This is going to be for you and for your descendants. Abraham was an old dude already. He was like, that's cool, God. I have no kids. And he's like, so how can I know that you're actually going to give my 
descendants this land. I don't even have any kids. And you're talking about me, one guy, taking over this whole of this land. How? And God's like, listen, I'm going to cut you a deal, Abram. But here's, here's what you have to do. This is in Genesis 15, verse 8. He says, but Abraham said, sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? Talking about the land. So the Lord said to him, bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Abram brought all of these to him, cut them in two, and arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he didn't cut in half. And so here you have God saying, listen, Abram, we're going to cut a deal. And for them, that was literally a cut of a deal. They got these animals, and they cut them in half. And when they cut them in half, they make this big old bloody mess. Now, you got to picture it in your head. All these animals cut in half, laid out on the sides. And then later, in Genesis 15, 17, a few verses later, it says that when the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. And on that day, the Lord cut a deal with Abram. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. So this is a weird scene, right? I mean, can we just say the, this is weird? It's actually even weirder than it, than it reads here because it gets like super crazy. Because now, again, back in the ancient Near East, if you made a deal, if you and I made a deal, let's say I was buying some land or I was buying a, a house from you or something like that or selling a bunch of cattle or whatever, heifers apparently, uh, we, we were doing that. We would take animals and we would cut them in half and we would make this whole big bloody mess. And so like imagine like you've got these animals all kind of bleeding out into the, into the middle here. And so, like, a, uh, I've got a drawing of it here. Somebody was kind of taking a shot at it. So you have the animals here, and you see they got a picture of this guy kind of walking through the blood. And so they're raising the stakes on this deal that they've made. They're, they're, they're putting an investment into it. They're saying, look, this is a serious contract that we're making. We're cutting a serious deal here. And so they've got all of these animals lined up. And if you and I were making this deal, we would walk through these animals together. As if to say, if you don't hold up your end of the bargain, may this be done to you. And I'm saying, if I don't hold up my end of the bargain, may this be done to me. May I be torn apart and bleed out if I violate this contract. So they're, they're raising the stakes. They're Imagine signing contracts like this today. This would be pretty awesome. It would change the whole way we view these things. Like a signature here and walk between the dead animals, please. And so, uh, like, this is pretty crazy. But now here's the thing. If a king was making this agreement with one of their subjects, the king wouldn't have to walk between the animals. The king gets to do what the king wants to do. He's the king. So if he decides to kill you and your family and turn your house into a pile of rubble, he can do that because he's the king. You would have to walk through the animals and say, if I don't hold up my end of the bargain, may this happen to me. Abraham would have expected to walk through these animals. He would have been expected that God said, let's cut a deal, Abram. And Abram would walk through and say, hey, if I don't hold up my end of the deal, then let this happen to me. Let me be torn apart. And instead, only the fire pot, the symbol of God. God takes that moment, does not call Abram to walk through, and God himself does. 
in the form of that fire pot, he says, in effect, it's as if God is saying, if you don't hold up your end of the deal, Abram, may this be done to me. This must have blown Abram's mind. What, it doesn't even make any sense. It's God. How is it that God could suffer? How is it that God could bleed out? And why would he do it if it's Abram's fault for violating the covenant? This is one of the most challenging ideas that we come across in the scriptures. Because the old covenant had shown up many, many times in exactly the same way. In the Garden of Eden, we were told, hey, don't eat from the tree. If you eat from the tree, you get kicked out. How did it, how did it end? They got kicked out. Because, of course, they didn't hold up their end of the deal. Later on, the time of Noah, God's like, if you guys don't get your act together, I'm going to destroy the earth. Guess what happened? Earth was destroyed through the flood. Later on, you get to the nation of Israel. God's like, hey, I'm going to give you this land to the Jewish people. He's like, but if you don't follow the rules, if you don't do what's right, if you refuse to act justly and do mercy, I'm going to kick you out of the land. Guess what happened? They got kicked out of the land. Because humanity never holds up our end of the bargain. We can't do it. We will always end up failing. And so time and again, the old covenant, the rules of the old covenant were enacted against us. But you see, you kind of already know this because forget the whole God piece for just a moment. You already know you don't live up to your own expectations and standards. You already have guilt and shame that, that kind of lodges into our souls somewhere deep in our hearts because we already know how we have disappointed the people that we care about and how we have failed our kids and how we as kids have failed our parents and, and how we made promises that we didn't keep and how we did things that we're ashamed of and that we're embarrassed of, things that we don't even tell anyone about because we're, we're just, we, we would be shamed to death if anybody knew those kinds of things. And so now you add the responsibilities and the requirements that God has put on us to live holy and right and just and, and filled with mercy and loving our enemies and all that kind of stuff. And you throw that all on there and you realize, of course, we're never going to be able to hold up our end of the bargain. And this is so disturbing. And then about 2,500 years ago, the prophets began to talk about something called the new covenant. Look what Jeremiah says, 31. He says, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. Hear the heartbreak this is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they will be my people and no longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. And here is the basis of the new covenant. Here it is. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. He'll forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. And this is called the new covenant. And it was in this new covenant that the people would long for. It's what we in our deepest 
parts of our heart and of our souls. This is what we long for, that finally we would be able to stand before our God. We would be able to stand before the creator of the whole universe without fear of his wrath, without the sense that we will be punished for our sins. I mean, this is the very thing that causes us to separate ourselves from God and to pull away from him. He's saying, I am going to wipe all of that away. And I'm going to put something new in place, a new deal, a new contract that I am going to cut with all of humanity. And then Jesus, 2,000 years ago, he crashes onto the scene. And on the night before the crucifixion, the night before Jesus himself, he was going to die. He gathers up his disciples and he's celebrating the Passover with them. And he, and he takes bread and he takes the cup. And this is how Luke, the gospel writer, records it. He says, he took bread, he gave thanks, and he broke it. And he gave it to them saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the what? It's the new covenant. It's the new covenant in his blood poured out for you and poured out for me. It's the blood of the new covenant. So Jesus lives the perfect life, the life that we could never do, the life that Adam and Eve didn't, didn't nail, the, the life that Noah and his descendants and that Moses and the Levitical priesthood and the nation of Israel and all of humanity throughout history we couldn't live that perfect life, and Jesus lived that perfect life. He obeyed God perfectly. He held up his end of the bargain. He lived it perfectly, never sinned, and did not deserve the wrath of God. And so then Jesus, because of that, he earns all of the blessings of the covenant, all of the promises that had been given to us if we would only follow and obey, if we would only live by the terms of the, the contract, all of them are now given to Christ because of his perfect life. And then he dies a sacrificial death. He dies in our place. And so for all of the misery that humanity has caused, we just, Trevor's prayer is just an example of just a, a taste of the kind of misery, war and sickness and disease, all of the things that we have created, all of the heartache that we, we rightly have violated the things that God loves, each other, people, the world that he created, and his wrath, which is well-deserved by all of the people that have continued to refuse to live the way that he had called us to live, all of that wrath was poured out and exhausted at the cross on the very one who did not deserve it. And so we see back at the time of Abram, God the fire pot, walking through, moving through the cut animal, saying, listen, if you don't live up to your end of the bargain, may this happen to me. And you think, how in the world is it going to happen? Because God in the flesh can suffer. Emmanuel, God with us, Jesus can suffer. And he chose to in order to take the wrath that we deserved so that he might give us, with the power of his resurrection, all of the promises of the covenant that he earned on our behalf. 
Never before has there been such a perfect blending of law and of love. And so, you know, you might want to keep God at arm's length. You might want to, you know, you might want to try to keep Jesus at a distance. You might, you might not want him getting too serious about you, but it's too late for that. God is head over heels in love with you. And he is willing to pay any price to restore you back to a covenantal relationship with him. When we celebrate the Lord's table, that's a sliver of what we are remembering and what we're recognizing. So let's invite the kids out for their first Holy Communion. If you enjoyed the sermon, want to learn more about Jesus, or get to know our community, please visit beacon.church to get connected. We would love to hear from you.